0: Chad and Jay Mansbridge here. Lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth, and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Good morning. Very good morning again. Uh, I did welcome you earlier if you're visiting here today. If you don't know me, my name's Chad, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and. Uh, and uh, have done for 17 years, and I've been reflecting on that a little bit this week as I've been preparing what I'd share today, which is kind of our first Sunday for the year. Kinda. okay? It's like Happy New New Year, everybody, because as we all know, the first weekend of February, for many of us, particularly those with families, as I mentioned before, it's kind of like this is when routine starts. This is where the new year starts properly. some of us, Many of us in the workforce, we've had our summer holidays. We're back well and truly into work. We've got in the routine of children and, and uh, other scenarios. We understand here as a church in a tourist area, Victor Harbour. Uh, summer is a funny time for us. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've had meetings here where I would say literally 50% of the people in the room are holiday makers uh, because many of you go away, and so you should, and enjoy holiday time. And our seats are full with Holiday visitors, and there's still even a few here today, a few hangers on, they're extending their summer break. And uh, more and more, we have holiday makers that uh, call this church their second home. So, uh, in some ways, here on the first week of February, it's like another New Year's. We're a little bit like the Chinese, I guess, or ex- expats in China. I've got friends who live in Hong Kong, and they have two New Year's every year. So, they've got January the 1st, where they have New Year's, and then, of course, at this time of the year, they have Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year started last week. How many of you know what year it is this year? The year of the rat. Charming isn't it? I'm sure there's some good luck in there somewhere but uh, it is the year of the, of the rat. But in many ways, why do I say all that? I say that to say this is in many ways our the start of our new year proper and uh, what I want to do today is speak to you as a church family uh, with more of a local church message than a fun holiday, summer mixtape type of messages like we've been doing uh, over summer. So I kind of want to put my lead pastor hat on today and uh, speak to you in that capacity if I could do that. I want to bring together two things that um, God dropped into my heart toward the end of last year. Uh, One is something that's very unusual for me where I was reading a passage of Scripture in Nehemiah. We're going to get there in a moment, Nehemiah chapter 2. And three words just leaped off the page at me. Uh, Now, there are different ways to read the Bible. There are different ways to approach Bible reading. Fundamentally, I I, I see three uh, main ways that I know work when it comes to reading the Bible. Uh, One is my favourite, the first one, which I think should take up the majority of our Bible reading, which is reading the Bible systematically, reading the Bible systematically from start to finish, reading the Bible as it's being presented, where we take a book of the Bible, like Philippians or Nehemiah, for example, and you literally just read as it's being laid out from start to finish. You get the flow of the story, uh, you get the narrative, you understand where the author is going, and uh, things are far better put into context there. Some of you who follow me on social media know that today, this weekend, I'm uh, relaunching the Chronological Bible in a Year Reading Challenge that I did here two years ago. I'm relaunching that on my social media so I can, we can try to reach a whole new audience okay people that know me from different parts of the world and uh, there we literally have people and pastors in different parts of the world a pastor in South Africa who I met just recently in September who has been sharing those links with his church and in the last week or so I had people from all over South Africa ding 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 ding, ding joining up to read through the Bible in a year with me in a chronological sequential fashion that is my favorite way I find that in understanding the Bible story that is the best way to approach your Bible reading but there are others Another way to approach Bible reading is topical. So the first is chronological, the second is topical, where you uh, have a topic or a subject matter on your heart or on your mind. All right, And you might think, hey, I've come to Jesus recently and I haven't been baptised yet. So what you do is you look up every scripture or passage you can find related to baptism and you f- focus on that topic. So that's kind of a topical reading or a topical study. And the third type is what many of us would call a devotional reading, okay? You heart people, uh, this, this is the one for you, okay? This is where you read the scripture with the express intent of leading you to worship and expressing a heart, your heart devotion to the Lord. It is a moment where you come to the scripture and you allow his spirit specifically to minister to you and bring you, as it were, a now word. Uh, those of you with Pentecostal backgrounds, you've probably been raised to distinguish the difference between a logos word from God and a rhema word. How many of you have heard that kind of distinction? This is the written word and this is the alive word that God illuminates to me. Oh, I needed to hear that today. Okay, it's kind of a devotional band that just stood out of me. Well, God took me by surprise a few weeks ago when I was reading Nehemiah, as I normally do, just reading the story because i I felt like God had put something on my heart to share with our leadership group. And as I was reading that story and getting that story in my mind again, Jehovah Sneaky came along (laughs) and he surprised me by illuminating three words in the passage that I was reading that just gripped my heart. That is somewhat unusual for me and so it stood out for me. And I'm going to share those words today. They're already on the screen. The words, come, let us. But before I do that, I want to combine that with something that God spoke to me in November about 2020. I shared this in the last Sunday of last year. So allow me just to do a a brief reminder. We're in a prayer time here and we were asked to consider what was on God's heart for 2020. And as soon as Jay proposed that question, and this is how I know God speaks to me because it's super fast. I saw the numbers 2020 with a semicolon in between. Boom, boom. So it wasn't the day 2020. It was 20 colon 20, and as soon as I saw that, I I thought 40 is a generation. David fulfilled God's purpose in his generation. Acts chapter 13. 2020 is a halfway. 20 is the number of accountability, which means it is half time scrum time of a team that get together to give an account for where they've gone so far to assess where they're going in the next half of the game. And this 2020 is a time where I can recommit myself to fulfilling God's purpose for my generation. And I understand that I do that as part of a team because God has put other people around me. And all that happened in a split second. All right. So what's God saying about 2020 to you? Boom. That's it. That's what God's saying. All those things there, just like that. And so I just felt for me and for us as a church for this year, kind of a refocus of us saying, listen, it's the time to gather together and to see, hang on, we are about, as an individual like David, I'm about fulfilling God's purpose in my generation. Not fulfilling my purpose. doesn't say that in Acts 13. It says David fulfilled God's purpose in his generation. Generation And as we looked at the story of David, the last message of last year, I looked at three groups of people that contributed to David fulfilling God's purpose. Because our fulfilling God's purpose is done in team. Fulfilling God's purpose is a team sport. You, David, you, Bronwyn, you, Carol, you, Peter fulfilling God's purpose that he has for your life is a team sport and you fulfill God's purpose that he has specifically placed on your life like David did you fulfill God's purpose in your generation by understanding that God has placed people in your life in that journey and we looked at some of the people involved in David's journey people in his past that had contributed to who he became as a young man people that he was walking with in his present and people that he, like his son Solomon, that he was building toward that would come after him into his future. You can get that message online. But I want to combine those two things today knowing that that is kind of what God has put on my heart in my lead pastor hat on. To say, okay, let's bring those two things together. We fulfill God's purpose in our generation together. It is a team sport. And we are to develop a culture and a mindset and an attitude that says, come let us. Come, let us get involved with what God has called us to do. It's bringing the us language, that communal, collective, come let us, because Christianity is a team sport. So you ready? Get the deep heat out, rub it on. This is like the, uh, this is like the club room today. I tell you, there's nothing better than the smell of male sweat, deep heat and green grass. There is nothing better than that, than that smell. Come on, boys. Oh, come on. Why do we have B.O.? The story of Nehemiah is... Um, it's actually the last book in the. Oh no, it's not. It's uh, Chronicles is. Anyway, it's the last part of the Old Testament story before we enter into the four hundred year no Scripture period uh, between Old and New Testaments. Nehemiah is kind of the last story in the story line, and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is originally one book, and it's a book of restoration. So in the story of God's people, you've got the age of the ancients, Abram. Uh, you've got you know, guys like Noah. Okay, and Enoch and Adam, okay, the men who walked with God. Then we come to Abraham and you enter the age of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the boys end up in Egypt where Moses comes along and then you've got the age of the judges, where Moses is this great leader of God's people that become a nation and they move towards a promised land and then they disperse and they have judges over them at various times and various places and then they ask for a king and God, while it didn't surprise him, it didn't particularly please him, but he gives them a king and God's family that became a nation now become a kingdom, so... David, Solomon, 40 years each, 120 years. After Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. One kingdom dies. The other kingdom is sent into Babylon. And after 70 years there, they now come back. That's the whole Bible, Old Testament story right there. Okay, So they now come back to their city that's been left in ruins. They have no temple. They have no walls. They have no infrastructure. It's a mess. And Nehemiah hears that the people there are struggling in their building, Nehemiah chapter 1, and it grieves his heart. And like everything that grieves our heart, he did not wallow in the grief of that. Oh, crap. oh dear. <laughs> Jerusalem's in a, in a prickle. Pickle. <laughs> it's in the Hebrew. Jerusalem... He didn't wallow in that in depression. No, he took that burden on his heart and lifted it to God and said, Lord, if it's possible, I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of the solution to this problem. And three months later, a door of opportunity opened to him where the king said, what's up with you, mate? And he shared his heart and he shared a plan. And that king sends him to Jerusalem to say, okay, if you want to have a part in rebuilding what God, the the city that's been left destroyed, your ancestor's city, if you want to go back there, go for it, mate. I'll help you out. And Nehemiah goes back and he scouts out the city because he's strategic. He's a governor. He's the governor. Okay, he's the governor. He's strategically looking at the city, and then he comes to the people who live there, and he says this to them in Nehemiah chapter two, verse seventeen. Then I said to them, "You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come." Let us, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and will no longer be in disgrace. And those were the three words that just, boom, jumped off the page to me. Come, let us. Powerful words. Come, let us. He goes on to say, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. Also, I told them about the gracious hand of the God that was on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. My goal this morning is to start a series for term one of this year that captures the refrain, come let us. With those three words, hopefully, my intent, my goal, and what I think is Holy Spirit's goal for us, is that those three words are not just three words on a page. But those three words begin to form more so part of our thinking and our decision-making and our conversation as a church family where we think in terms of come, let us, come, come, let us. I'm committed in 2020 to fulfilling God's purpose in my generation. Committed to fulfilling God's purpose in my generation. I understand that is done in partnership with others. And so I develop an, an understanding and a mentality and an attitude that says... Come, let us. As an individual like Nehemiah, as an individual like David, I take my responsibility and I say, I've got a plan. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm called to. But I'm going to do all that I can to include others in on the journey as I develop a come, let us attitude. So that's where I'm going today. All right? That's our Turn 1 series. Today, I want to speak about come, let us build. I just want to take the words here of Nehemiah. Come, let us build. The whole reason for Nehemiah building and why it was important to him and in his context it was rebuilding because as I said Jerusalem was in ruins at this time It was a rebuild but the whole reason for that is is number one it was important for the glory of God's name this city represented God's name if the city was in bad nick it poorly represented God so it mattered to Nehemiah because God's glory mattered to Nehemiah it mattered to Nehemiah because God's people mattered to Nehemiah. He said, we are in disgrace. It's not good for us that our city is unprotected. It's not good for us that our temples in a sham. Okay? It's not good for us. It is important because it's good for God's people to have a strong city and it mattered to him because it was not only good for God, not only good for God's people, but it was good for outsiders that God's city was in good nick. Because God had called Jerusalem, in the Old Covenant context, God had called Jerusalem to be the shining light for other nations. So, like in the days of Solomon, other nations, Queen of Sheba, all that, could come and say, wow, your God's pretty darn good. Okay, it is good for outsiders to see the church, the people of God, in good nick because our job is to display God's nature. And so it is a good thing for us to say, come let us build. Let us build God's city. Let us build God's home, as it were, because our motive is for the glory of God's name, the benefit of others, and the benefit of those people who call the church their home. This is in direct contrast to one of the first times we see the words, come let us, in the Bible. And of course, almost everything that happens first happens in the book of? Origins, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 11, we've got this story of a, of a place called Babylon. Babylon shortened version, Babel, Babel, in the, in the Hebrew it's exactly the same word, okay, it's Babel, Babylon, same thing and there's a story in Genesis 11 where the people after hearing about the flood that happened with Noah come up with a great idea, it's the very next story and it says the people in Babylon said to each other, come let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly, use brick instead of stone and use tar for mortar, Tar and mortar is what Noah did around the ark. Okay, So they used tar and water. Why? Because they didn't trust God's word that said the flood won't come again. So they tarred and mortared it to make it waterproof. Okay, It's a boom, boom. It's a story one after the other. These things all continue. Okay, So they make this and they say, come, let us make bricks. What do they do with these bricks? The next verse says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, please understand, this is not a physical tower that reaches to the physical heavens. It wasn't their goal to out-tower one another physically, like in Italy, or have seen that before. This was basically a way of saying, let us build something that touches the spirit realm. Let us build a temple, as it were. Uh, most historians would say this is probably an, an ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat, is the historical term for this. So it is a place where heaven and earth meet. Let us have a place where the heavens and earth meet. One another, and let us do this for what reason? So that we can make a name for ourselves. That we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth, over the whole land. Let us build a tower where heaven and earth meet for our glory and for our name's sake. And that's why the very next story in the book of Genesis counters this, because God comes to a man called. Abraham and says, I will make your name great and I will scatter your descendants all over the face of the earth. So what these guys wanted to do for themselves, God says, I'm actually willing to do that for you. I'm actually willing to gift you a good reputation. I'm actually willing to make your name great. I am willing to make you very influential and I am willing to bring heaven to earth. In a people, I'm willing to have my presence, heaven meet earth, in a people and it comes through a promise. It doesn't come because we try to reach our own way to heaven for our own glory. It comes because God is a God of promise and chooses an Iraqi man who did not know God, who worshipped multiple gods and says, Abram, I choose you, mate. And Abraham believed and God said, you are righteous in my eyes. This is the gospel, the gospel of grace, where God comes to people and says, I choose you and I want to make your name, I want to make your name great. And if your name becomes great, it will reflect well on me because I will be your God. Too much theology. That's too much theology for one day. Okay, that's fine. That's kind of the story there in Genesis. Let's get to a a, a normal story. Let me change the pace here. It was the Monday. It was June the 22nd, and it was two, no, July the 22nd, sorry, it was 2002. I, Jay and I were participating in a leadership course, an intensive church leadership course, about three to four months in length. We were just coming to the end of it. It was deliberately and intentionally planned for people who wanted to plant a church one day specifically. We were part of a group of about four or five couples, different parts of the world, people came and were participating in that. And we were the only couple in the room that didn't know where God had called us to plant a church. So we were the odd ones out. We knew God had called us to lead. We were 23. At the time, Jesse was nine months old. And I was getting a bit frustrated. Because in the room, as people were saying, we're going to plant a church in the Philippines. We're going to plant a church on the North Island of New Zealand. We want to plant a church in Canada. We're sitting there going, we're here because God's told us to be here, but we really don't know many more of the details. And I was a bit frustrated with that. And so on the 22nd of July, 2002, I went to our spare bedroom at Hallett Cove and I sat on the bed and I said, God, speak to me. I challenge you. I dare you to speak to me. And I did the thing that you should never, ever, ever do. I opened my Bible and I stuck my finger on the page. Never do that. Because I'm a systematic Bible reader, Holy Spirit didn't open it to any particular... It just opened to where my ribbon was. And I I just happened to be up to a book in the Bible called Zechariah 8. And as I opened my Bible and it opened to where the ribbon was and I put my finger on the page, it opened at Zechariah 8 and I was so disappointed because I had no idea who Zechariah was. There was nothing written or highlighted on the page. I'd been reading Zechariah. Apparently, I'd just finished seven chapters. I couldn't tell you anything that I'd just read. None of you know what that's like. And i like, okay, let's read. And as I read a bit like what happened to me last year. Words just suddenly popped off the page. And whilst I understand the historical context of the Scripture, whilst I salute that and whilst I appreciate that, in fact, Zechariah is a prophet that prophesied in the era of Ezra and Nehemiah. He was one of the three prophetic books that spoke at that restorative time. Okay. As I read Zechariah 8, my heart just leapt. I'm like, that's for us, that's for us, that's for us, that's for us. That's for us. And before we ever knew that Victor Harbour was the destination that we would move to three months later. Before we knew that, God had spoken to us promises over this home. And today, as I say, come let us build, I want to show you Zechariah 8, because some of you have never heard me speak out of this passage, You never heard that story before. I want to speak out of Zechariah 8, I just want to show you five things. As I say, Bayside, come let us build, here are five things in this passage that God is wanting to do amongst us as a church. So I'm in Zechariah 8, one of the last of the prophets. If you can find Matthew, turn left and we'll get there. Otherwise, it's on the screen. Zechariah 8 verses 1 to 2 starts by saying this. In my disappointed state of why on earth, Zechariah. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning With jealousy for her. I am burning with jealousy. As I invite you to come, let us build this house. I'm inviting you, number one, to build a place of passionate love. Build a place of passionate love. God may be many things, but He is not mediocre. And he starts this chapter by saying, I am burning with jealousy for my people. I am burning with jealous love for my people. God is not mediocre. He is not average. He is not passionless. He is, the book of Hebrews says, a consuming fire. And he is passionately committed to his people. He is burning with jealousy for for you. He burns with jealousy for us. Now, a few years ago, we had someone here, a gentleman from Melbourne called Alan Meyer, Australian speaker, and uh, he explained what this jealousy is because one day he was reading a scripture of God. It says God is jealous. In fact, the Old Testament says God's name is jealous. One of his names is Jealous with a capital J. And he said, well, and he did what we all should do when we read the Bible and said, hang on, God, how come it's all right for you and it's not all right for me? Because jealousy is a sin, right? To be jealous... It's a bad thing and yet you say you're jealous. How come it's all right for you and it's not all right for me? And he said, instantly God gave him a picture of a man coming to his front door with a bouquet of flowers, knocking on the door and saying, G'day Al, I've been watching your wife over the fence. I reckon she's an all right sort. I think I might ask her out for a date. And he said, instantly he knew what jealousy was. There's a difference between having jealousy for something that is not rightfully yours and having jealousy for something that is rightfully yours. I am jealous for that because that belongs to me or that is mine. And don't, don't come up to me and talk to me later about not owning your wife. Or whatever, you get the vibe of what I'm saying. That is my relationship. That is my, I am jealous for that with a godly jealousy. Paul says that to the Corinthians. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. David said, and Jesus, it was quoted about Jesus Zeal for your house consumes me. Why? Because it's not just God's house, it's my house. The church is my house, God says. And so it is with us. The church is our home. This is my dad's place. Dang it. And so I'm. <laughs> we're going to edit so much out today. The, 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 it's my dad's house. So get your hands off her. Jesus um, comes along Saul of Tarsus one day. He becomes known as the Apostle Paul. And he knocks him flat to the ground poof, in a blinding light. Bam! And he said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul would have been very logical for him to say, I don't even know who you are. And he says that. He says, who are you, Lord? You know, I don't even know who you are. How can you say I'm persecuting you? I can't even see you. Who the heck are you? Jesus took it personally when Paul persecuted his bride. Paul was persecuting Christians and Jesus said, you do that to them, you do me. You touch my bride. You just try it. You try touching my bride. You touch my bride, you're touching me. You persecute my people, you're persecuting me. You gossip about that church down the road, you're gossiping about me. You speak badly about that believer, you're speaking badly about me. This is the Jesus with eyes of fire. That eye of fire is a jealous love. They're my people. Get your hands off them. Get those type of words off those people. They are my people. I bought them with my blood. This is a jealous love. And God opens this this, this, this passage in Zechariah 8 by saying, I am jealous for my people. I am passionately committed to them. What type of house is Jesus building? He's building a house of passionate love. With that passion we understand he is passionate for us. And out of that we have passion for him and for his people. And everybody said. Number two. Verse, next verse, verse three. This is what the Lord says I will return to Zion. I will return to Zion. And I will dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. The mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Historical context here is that as God's people, as Jerusalem burned down in this period of time and they were sent away into Babylon, God left them. That's what Ezekiel says God left the house. His glory, Ezekiel had a vision of God's cloud coming off Jerusalem and lifting away to another mountain, which we find out later is the Mount of Olives. Okay, ooh, It's full circle. Everything comes full circle. Point is, God left his people. God's glory presence left them. And so here he is saying, I'm going to dwell with them again. There's a time coming where I will be with my people. What kind of church is God building amongst us? I'm inviting you to come and let us build a place of God's manifest presence. A place where it can be said of us as a family God's there. God is there. There's many things I want the church that I'm a part of to be known for. Not because I'm the pastor just because I'm a Christian and I care. I give a darn. But I have to be part of a community where God's there. If God's not here and it's just a group of people, then it's just a group of people. And quite frankly, I prefer the decor at many of the cafes around town. There's other, there's other places I'd rather be, especially when the sun's out, but I'd, be with other, I'd rather be at Horseshoe Bay with other people if it's just about being with people. But church is God plus people. It's people plus God. It's a sense of knowing that there's, God is in the midst of his people. God is committed to us and in that he is committed to being with us. And I specifically use the word manifest presence because manifest means god it's obvious God is there. There's an awareness of God's presence there. I often talk about God's presence, describing it in different ways as being a little bit like water. Right now there, there is water in this room. Okay? There, there, is, there is moisture in the room that you're, you're breathing in but you can't see it, it's not particularly that detectable. But if you, like Jay did last week, went to see her parents in Queensland, the moment she got off the plane in the Gold Coast, she breathed in extra humidity. And we had that two days ago, didn't we? We walked out and you're like, whoop, I just swallowed some water in my breathing then, you know? It's like the presence of that humidity was thicker. And then of course you have a sauna, which is another level of intensity. Then of course you have a glass of water. Then of course you have a swimming pool where you are totally immersed. It's just Different levels of density. Water is everywhere, so to speak, in the atmosphere, right? But there's different levels of intensity. And that's kind of what God's presence is like. God is everywhere. But there's different levels of his intensity. There's different levels of awareness of, wow, God is really here. <laughs> you know, God, The presence of God is really thick today. I mean, it's pretty darn obvious. I felt something. I sensed something. I, God was seen to be close. Legally, I can't be any more close to God than what I am because I'm as close as Jesus is legally but I can experience different levels of his closeness. So Jacob can be having a sleep on a rock, wake up with a sore neck, but he had a dream that night and he said, wow, God was in this place, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it. The place was called Bethel, the house of God, where the ladder, where heaven and earth meet. God was here. I just didn't know it, but now I do. So there's different times where we're like, God's everywhere and that presence, that manifest presence is something you can experience just by making ourselves aware of him. Stopping for a moment five seconds maybe that's all it takes you to go God there you are you're here I'm telling myself I'm reminding myself of how close you are I want to be part of a community I want to encourage you to build a community where it is known that God is in our midst and this chapter begins and ends with this promise of God's presence and we'll get to that later the important thing is that roots determine roots roots determine fruits and for us to be a fruitful people It starts by us being rooted in the love of God, his passionate love for us and rooted in Christ. We are joined with him. His presence matters to us. And anybody who's anybody said, if you agree with that, amen. Third thing is this, come let us build a place of both unity and diversity. A place of unity and diversity. Diversity. Now, some of you cringe when you hear that word diversity because it's become a bit of a buzzword in our culture in the last 15 years and sometimes not with the greatest of connotations all the time. Some people are committed to saying that diversity is our strength, but you are only strong in diversity if within that diversity you're unified. <laughs> diversity of values and opinions and goals and that actually, actually division. Diversity can be strong if it's diversity and unity together. And this is what we see in the Scriptures, in the the passage of Ephesians 4. We are one body but many parts. One Lord, one head, but many roles to play. Unity and diversity, unity and diversity. The Scriptures speak about that all over the place. And Zechariah 8 is full of specific promises about the diversity and the unity of this city. Let's have a look. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. How many canes do we have here today? I can see one. I see that cane. I see that cane. Verse 5 says, though, this, the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Male, female, old, Young together. God has promised us to be a house of multiple generations. Saying to some visitors here from Adelaide earlier, it's pretty common in this area because we're such an older population on average. There are churches in this area where the average age is over seventy. God has called us, and this is not God has called us and given us a promise to be a church for all ages. Old and young, boys and girls playing there. Verse 7, it goes on to say, this is what the Lord says, I will save my people from the countries of the east and west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people. I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. And again, every, this is a historical context. It has a, uh, if I was teaching on this verse from a historical point of view, I'd talk about the scattering of Israel. However, in this sense of God giving me a promise for the church that we would one day lead, I felt God say, wherever you are, people will gather from the east and west. And here in Victor Harbour, we do not call ourselves a Victor Harbour church. We are a church for the Flurio region. We might, our building might be in the Victor Harbour postcode. But if you are here today and you drive from Gulwa, Currency Creek, and High Marsh Island, Mount Compass, other places, east and west, you are fulfilling God's promise for us as a church to say that people will come from east and west, that this would be, as it were, Cape Jarvis, a regional church centre, where people will come because God is gathering people from the east and the west. Verse 20 says this, this is what the Lord Almighty says, many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. Each will go to the other and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and entreat him. Again, this language of let's all go together and there are many different types of people. Powerful people simply means influential people. And from day one, God has granted us as a church people of particular influence and people who are struggling. And both are incredibly valuable. In this church, we have people who on the economic scale are down, to, uh, in the struggle area. And those who have done very well in their life in that area. And that is a good thing. God has promised us to be a home of unity and diversity different people different vocations we should embrace that and say amen to that this is god's promise for us it finishes in verse 23 by saying this is what the lord almighty says in those days ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one jew by the hem of his robe and say let's go with you because we have heard god is with you we'll keep this verse on the screen because this is how the whole chapter finishes and i want to focus on this for a while Many people of different languages and nations. Now, we know that in this area, the Flurio, you look at a census, we are very Caucasian, very English speaking Caucasian, this area. Okay, that's just how it is. But my friends, we are as open as we can to say, people of different languages, people of different cultures, whoever is represented in this area, we say we are a house of unity and diversity. This is a promise. For us and I want to encourage you today, come let us come let us build a place where all are together and each are welcome. Where all are together and each are welcome. Amen. Come let us build a place of fruitfulness. And influence. I'll be quicker on this one, Matt, so you can rest assured. Of fruitfulness and influence. Verses 12 to 13 says this. I love these. I love these. Oh, these are such good verses. Verse 12. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops and the heavens will continue to drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and Israel, so I will save you and you will be a blessing to them. The very ones that cursed you, you actually be a blessing to them. So do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Historical context, absolutely. Prophetic context as God was illuminating something to my heart. It was a reassurance that the church you plant, 2002, would be a place of influence and would be a place of fruitfulness. And that, my friend, is a promise to us. God said to Abraham, I will bless you. I will bless you and I will make you fruitful. That is a promise that we have as God's people of faith. And when Jesus died, a great exchange took place where he was cursed that we would be blessed. Because of his presence, fruitfulness and increase is ours. And of course, that fruitfulness and increase exists beyond our borders. This church from day one has had a call on us to be a blessing beyond our borders. We did not put the word international in our name because we had a vision for multiple church campuses around the world or because we're a part of a Bayside collective movement of international churches. No, we put the word international in our name to signify that our vision and our purpose was to exist beyond the flurio. We are a church that has the nations on our heart, like Abraham, I will bless you and you'll be a blessing to nations. There's numbers of ways we do that, through the year and other certain organisations and whatever that we sponsor and support. One simple way is that a number of years ago, our eldership decided that at least five weekends a year, I would be sent to minister elsewhere and other weekends as as a, a sign of us saying, we exist to be a blessing beyond our borders. And sending preachers to different places is just one example one small example, but a significant example of the way that we are a blessing beyond our borders. But that is something that I want to invite you to say and say to you today, come let us. Come let us understand that we are a church of influence and that we are a church of fruitfulness that goes beyond the borders of these four walls and that goes beyond the borders of our flurio. And this happens regularly. It's one of the reasons that we have an internal Facebook page and we have opportunity to share good news to see how we bless outside, people outside these walls, people outside this area. Rob Maureen often preach elsewhere. I heard Marty the other day was out preaching at a church in Adelaide. Jake and Jay and others have gone out to minister elsewhere. This is part of our inheritance, to be a blessing beyond our borders and we want to keep that going because we are a church of influence. Next, last, last thing. Number five, come let us build A place of size, a place of significant size. The last verse there in 23 said, The Lord Almighty says in those days ten men from all languages will take firm of one Jew and say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. Again, the promise of his presence. What is this city known for? Or they're known that God's there. That's the main thing. They're known that God is there. But knowing that God is there means that it's a place that grows. It is a place of growth. In fact, 10 people would take hold of one and say, we've heard that God's doing something in your midst. We want to come with you. And if, that, if there's 10 people to start with and each have 10, that makes 110 people pretty quick. If there are 20 people to start and each have 10, that makes 220 people pretty quick. When we first started... 17 years ago, there was close to 20 people that called this church their home. Today, there is in excess of 220. That holding firm hold 10 people and that type of increase is not something that we have sought because it's not our job to grow the church. Our job, as Paul said to the Corinthians, one sowed, another waters. God gives the increase. We do our part and in the sense we get out of the way and allow him to do what he wants to do. And size, growing a church of significant size is not a goal that pastors have so they can impress other people or at least it shouldn't be, certainly not with me. If bigger meant better, then obesity wouldn't be a problem. If bigger meant better, then God wouldn't have said to Gideon, "I'm going to strip your army down." In the story of Gideon, when he was victorious, it actually took less people to do a bigger job. If bigger meant better, it meant that when I ask you, "How's your marriage going?" or Malcolm asks you, because you know, as if I'm going to do that, if Malcolm asks you, "How's your marriage going?" and you say, "We're going great. We've got eight kids." Well, having more kids doesn't mean you've got a good marriage, necessarily. Bigger doesn't necessarily mean better. And a successful church is not necessarily a big one. When Jesus wrote, spoke to the seven churches in Revelation, he commends them for various things. Never once did he say, I commend you for being bigger than the church in Laodicea. I commend you for being a bigger church than what you were through. He, he doesn't say that. Doesn't commend them for that type of thing at all. Numerical growth is not necessarily a sign of health, but it certainly typically is. <laughs> when there is health, there is growth. And numerical increase is a promise of Abraham's blessing. God said to Abram in Genesis 17, "I will confirm my covenant between you and me and you, and greatly increase your numbers." Genesis 17, to Ishmael, I will bless him, make him fruitful, greatly increase his numbers. God to Jacob, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. God to Moses, Leviticus 26, I'll look on you with favour and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. Fruitfulness and increase in numbers do often go Hand in hand, we see this in the New Testament. Acts 4, many heard the message believe and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Acts 9, the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Acts 16, so the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. And in fact, it was this weekend in 2009, 11 years ago, to a room of 50 people where I suggested in a community hall where we were meeting that God had spoken to us and provided us an opportunity to buy 300 blue chairs. A group of 50, 60 people, first weekend of February 2009, God's given us a prophetic word about doing things back to front. God's given us a prophetic word about doing the last thing first. God's given us a word about the river from Goolwa running back into the mainland of Australia. God's told us that he will do things against the natural order. The same week that God said that, an opportunity, a pastor contacted me to say, there's a church in Adelaide who wants to sell a lot of their old chairs. Would you like some? And as soon as he said that, my heart said yes. A church of 50 people that day, 9 years ago, 11 years ago today, said we will buy 300 chairs and we don't even have a building to put them in. And in two weeks, some of you, you remember, in two weeks we bought three, the chairs you are sitting on and we bought them for you. We bought them for you 11 years ago because we didn't know your names and we didn't know your faces. We didn't know how you'd come to know Jesus. Those of you who've only just come to know Jesus in the last year or two, we didn't know who you were, but we bought these blue chairs for you because God had spoken to us and said, I've called Baseline to be a church that is bigger than the 20 you started with, bigger than the 50 that we were 11 years ago. And God has called us to be a place of some significant size. I knew from the day we started 17 years ago with 20 people on the basis of this promise Historical context, yes, I get it. But a now word God spoke to my heart. That we, at some point, would be God wanting us to be a church of at least 200, 220 people. And today, well, Malcolm will tell me later how many of you are here, but I'm, it's, <laughs> it's close to that. What does our future growth look like as a church? Will we peak at 220 as we are now? Will God cap it here? Will we cap it here? Will God continue to add to us? Will we go beyond 300? Does God want us to grow beyond 400 people? I'm not entirely sure. and In one sense, it's not my business and it doesn't really matter to me because I've never wanted... I don't have a desire for a particular number. I just want to do partner with God's purposes for us. I'm committed to... See, our vision is not a church of 200 people. That's a a pathetic vision. Our vision is nothing short, nothing less than Jesus. Because a vision is the, the, the picture that you have of a preferred future. And when we look into the future, what I want to encourage you to see is Jesus. My job as a pastor is not to give you a vision of 10 home groups and 5 outreach programs. And No, my, my job is to encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's our vision. He is our vision. So we fix our eyes on Him and as we walk with Him, He highlights things, he empowers us, he gives us dreams, he gives us visions, he leads us, he gives us promises. That's his business and we'll do our best to participate and partner with that. All I'm asking you to do is fix your eyes on him and be willing to say yes to whatever it is that he speaks to us because I'm committed to fulfilling his purpose in my generation. And while I make that a personal pledge, I also know that my walk with God is a team sport as well. And so today I want to say to you, come let us make that same commitment. And specifically today as I talk to my church family, come let us build. Come let us, Nehemiah, come let us build together. Let's not build a ziggurat where we try to work at a tower that touches heaven to make a name great for ourselves. Let's walk in the blessing of Abraham who came to undeserving people and said, I choose you and I want to bless you. I do that in Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus fulfilled that. We know that. I want to bless you. And I appreciate today that the church God has called me to build with is a church that is a place of passionate love. I am jealous for my people. It is a place of God's manifest presence where it is known from beginning to end. God is there. What's that church like? God's there. It's a place of diversity and unity. It's a place of fruitfulness and influence beyond our borders. And it is a place of size because while bigger does not necessarily mean better, things that are alive have a tendency to grow. And that is part of the church that I'm joining arms with in building. Come let us do that together. And Today, you might leave here and you might say, well, let me just say this, I'll close with this. We sung a song before that says God's promises are yes and amen, which is a nice lyric, but kind of a misquote. All God's promises are yes in Christ. Christ qualifies for all the promises, and because of what He's done, those promises are yes to us. And now our job, it goes on to say, is to say amen. God's promises are yes, and we say amen. So God's promises are yes and amen. Jesus said yes, and our job is to say, so be it. God says yes to his promises for those in Jesus, and our job is to say, then let it be. So today, as I say, come let us, I want to encourage you to look at these promises. Go home and read Zechariah 8, Okay, as boring as it might be to you. Read it now with these lenses for us as a church family and say yes to those promises. Say amen to those promises. Say it in prayer. When you're praying for this church, pray those things. Picture the old and the young together and say, Lord, that's us. That's for us. That's for our church. Picture the seed growing well and the vine yielding its fruit and declare, God, that will happen. Everything that our church does this week, businesses, homes, marriage course, play group whatever our church is involved in, feeding, helping struggling families on a Friday night, I declare good fruit. It's your promise to us. I say, let it be. We pray those things. We prophesy those things. We partner with them practically. When we, give, when we give our finance, we are saying, let it be to those promises. Because those promises to manifest require partnership of some degree. In our heart, in our head, and with our hands, we say, amen. Let it be. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au and of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say g'day. Bye.